0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Trust Issues, a podcast from Kepler Trust Intelligence. I'm David Kimberley, and I'm part of the investment trust team here at Kepler. Before I introduce this week's guest, a reminder that past performance is not a reliable indicator of future results, the value of investments can fall as well as rise, and you may get back less than you invested when you decide to sell your investments. It is strongly recommended that if you are a private investor, independent financial advice should be taken before making any investment or financial decision. And with that, I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hello, and welcome back to the Kepler Trust Intelligence Podcast. This week, I'm joined by Ed Buttery. Ed is the CEO of Taylor Maritime Investments, which is an uh, investment trust that invests in the shipping sector. Uh, so to get started, Ed, perhaps you could just give a brief intro on yourself, like your background, and um, you know, one or two lines on what Taylor Maritime actually yeah, does. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Thank you for having me, David. Um, so... Uh... I'm Ed Buttery, uh, and I'm CEO of TMI. Um, I've been in shipping my whole life, um, and the reason for listing uh, on the London Trust market was really that we wanted to bring a product that gave investors access uh, to shipping markets uh, where you can generate a a relatively consistent yield through a dividend, but also where you uh, can uh, create upside uh, in uh, capital appreciation. And uh, I think you know, in its first year, Taylor Maritime Investments has managed to achieve 81% return in in NAV, um, over 40% in the share price. Uh, we paid a 10% dividend on the uh, $1 uh, listing price, um, and and I think uh, that's demonstrated obviously by our timing. But what we're really trying to achieve is stability, and and shipping is often known as being a little bit more volatile. Um, and with TMI, what we do is we've, we invest solely uh, in the geared uh, shipping space, which means our ships all have cranes on them. They're also shallow drafted ships. And we tend to only buy ships from Japan where we feel the quality is higher and the reliability is better than, let's say, their counterparts in China. But the point about handy sized ships is that they can call a wide variety of ports. Um, they carry necessity goods, as we call them. So more than 50% of what we carry is food-related. That's to say anything that comes off a farm or goes to a farm, like fertilizer. Um, the rest of what we carry is basic infrastructure materials. And the demand for uh, these these types of products is extremely stable, uh, almost always positive in its growth, uh, and therefore is rel- reliable. So if you've bought cheap ships uh, and you have a responsible capital structure, Taylor Maritime today has about... Net 4%, I think, uh, debt, um, then you can al- almost always generate positive cash yield. And if you've got enough ships and you fix them out on one year charters and two year charters and six month charters, it means you've got this rolling conveyor belt um, of ships coming open, which smooths your earnings even in a volatile market. So, in a market where uh, at the end of last year we saw rates drop, let's say, seven or eight thousand dollars a day, the average earnings of Taylor Maritime only dropped a thousand dollars a day. And that's how we protect from the downside, but still keep the upside, because, of course, the values are going up and down all the time. Um, but we maintain stability in our earnings. So really, that's what, um, that's what Taylor Maritime does.
0: Okay. So you've touched on quite a lot of stuff there that I think some people listening may be familiar, but others may not. Um, so perhaps to start with, one of the things you talked about was the fact that you, you invest, I think, solely in handy so t- ships, right? But what, so can you explain what, for, for someone that doesn't know, okay, what is a handy sorry, size? Yeah. Ship? So,
1: within the dry bulk section, <laughs> the smallest uh, of the main market bulk commodity ships is called the handy size. It's literally called a handy size because it's a useful size. They're, they're characterized by having four cranes on board. Um, they'll often have uh, log stanchions on the deck, which sort of look like ladders that go up from the deck. Um, and and that's for obviously carrying logs on top of, on top on top of the deck as well. Uh, they're known for being shallow draughts, um, shallow draughts, so they can call uh, ports that uh, don't necessarily have modernised infrastructure or haven't had dredging yet. Uh, which means, for example, they can go all the way up the San Lorenzo San Lorenzo River Plate in Argentina, which requires a ship to have less than a ten metre draught. And so Handys are really the only ships that can go up there and load 30 plus thousand tons of, of grain. So we have a wider variety of ports we can call. But handy size are the workhorses of the sea. They're sort of the Ford transits. They carry everything. Uh, they can access uh, the, the, the congested ports and the shallow ports. Um, and that's why we focus on that for the time being. We focus on Handys at the moment because it is the most attractive segment to be in. And that was our opinion a few years ago, and it's turned out we were right. But that's not to say we wouldn't consider other segments one day, but what's really critical about what we do is we buy high quality ships um, uh, at attractive times in the cycle. Uh, And at the moment, handy size next year as a fleet is actually contracting versus demand growth. So um, even if demand slows down a bit, it's still positive. Now, the handy size fleet is shrinking, so we see a very definite shortage of ships next year and the year after. And we have clarity on what's being delivered because the um, yards, the shipyards that build all ships, are actually full for the next two years with container ships and tankers. Most people would have heard about the crazy container rates that are going on around the world at the moment. Uh, And as a result, that's led to a lot of new ordering and the yards are all filled with containers. So you couldn't build many handies even if you wanted to. So we're pretty clear about the shortage of ships in the next few years and therefore the, the, the strength of rates that should appear.
0: Okay. And what are the most common products that you end up transporting? I mean, you touched, I think it's, I think it's um, you said bulk dry commodities, but what, what actual, what does that mean in, in sort of more tangible terms? What uh, are the products? Corn, wheat, barley,
1: soybean meal, sugar, cement, um, logs, uh, different types of fertilizer copper concentrates um, things like that manganese ore um, yeah so but but predominantly uh, grains from farms and that will be Australia France um, uh, America um, Brazil Argentina Chile all over the world
0: okay and you've touched again on the um, the fact that there's a shortage of ships and that the past couple of years have been a bit a bit crazy why is that the case i mean why why you said for example four years ago that you were or, or a few years ago that you were you were confident that handy sized ships um were going to perform well what was the logic that went into that process why did you think that that was going to be the case um
1: well uh in 2000 in the 2000s a huge amount of private equity money came into the market and obviously we had this huge boom um then we had the drop in 09 and in the 2000s people have had ordered hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of handies. Um, in 2014, we had a false dawn. During that false dawn, a huge amount of private equity money that had made money in the 2000s piled in. Those um, those investments uh, went south very quickly, um, which actually scared off a lot of the traditional institutional investors for shipping, which meant there was a shortage of new building orders and also a shortage of money coming back into the market. Um, And so what we thought was that there's going to be limited supply of ships. Um, Banks are gun-shy as well as private equity investors. Um, And that really helped depress values to long-term lows in 16 and 17. And that's when we started buying ships. Um, So we managed to really buy at the very bottom. But even the IPO price uh, was below the long-term average. And that's why we thought it was a great deal for investors. Um, And today, you know, people will ask, the market's done really well uh, in the last few years. Am I too late? Have I missed the top? Well, the answer to that is probably not, because earnings are so strong at the moment, you can actually de-risk your ship very quickly if you have no debts, or, or actually, well, if you have debt, you can pay it off very quickly. But... The point is the the yield on these ships is 25 plus percent net to the investor on an unlevered basis. So even if you're paying slightly above the long term average today, the cash flow generated in only two years on a 10 year old ship gets you well below the long term average of that ship, which means you're de-risk quite quickly. Um, And that's why ships are still attractive and that's why they're still selling. And that's another reason why You're not seeing people rushing to the yards for a ship that won't deliver for three years um, for 36, 37 million dollars. When you can go out and pay 16, 17 million for a 10 or 11 year old ship that still has 20 years of life left in it and is generating 25 percent a year. Um, And with a shortage of ships next year, um, you know, it it wouldn't be surprising if if we saw values recover quite, quite strongly. So, you know, we, we are still we're still quietly optimistic about the coming years at least
0: okay i mean just from just from the outside and on a superficial level i think to, to, to draw an analogy right if i if you came to me and said um you should invest in this property because you, you can earn 20 or 25 percent yield on it i would say that sounds incredibly mm-hmm. high and perhaps not particularly sustainable um Obviously, shipping is, is probably rather different than the housing market, but there may be some similarities. So, so what would you say to someone who comes to you and says, Well, that sounds great, but that also doesn't sound particularly sustainable to me? Um,
1: it's unlikely to remain sustainable. But your point at which there's a yield that high uh, leads to two conclusions, either rates are too high or values are too low. Um, either way, there needs to be a squeeze. Um, and if you look at the, the indicators of ship values, you've got China. China have not hit their 5.5% GDP targets. They've now promised a trillion dollars in the coming years of investment in infrastructure. That infrastructure, uh, those infrastructure imports go on handy. Um, there's been a global grain uh, crop that disappointed this year. Uh, as a result, we're seeing an increase in fertilizer crops, which again means governments are unlikely to take Uh, any risk on on, uh, food security next year and the next crop. So we've got trillion dollars of infrastructure spending in China trying to hit that five and a half percent. We've got governments trying to create a bumper crop for next year for security. Um, You've got a shortage of ships. And so, and demand just has to be positive. If the fleet is shrinking and demand is not shrinking, then you've got demand outstripping supply. And even I can remember a-level economics, that's a good thing. Now, there are obviously other risk factors involved, but we are long-term fundamentals traders, um, and we believe in the fundamentals of this market for the foreseeable future.
0: Okay, and uh, I mean, I think so far we've touched a bit on the, on the sort of macro picture and, and why that's positive for you. Um, but something else I'm interested in is just a little bit about the practical side of the business. So if you own a ship for example how do you, how do you con- connect with someone that say wants to ship grain from i don't know argentina to somewhere in europe or in africa mm-hmm. or something like that how, how does that work and does that re- require some sort of level of connections that perhaps you know if, if you were an outsider would be quite difficult to yeah uh,
1: uh, shipping people in shipping have reputations for not falling into shipping you sort of you you're born into shipping either as a broker or friends in in the business or family in the business and um and 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 shipping tends to be a bit of a lifestyle i mean you you don't shipping is not just a job people who are who are in it live it breathe it and eat it 24 hours a day seven days a week uh shipping is everything to me um and sorry and, and the point is I grew up in the industry with people who are now at the grain trading houses. Uh, and when I was a broker in London at Clarkston's, um, I would call up Cargill, Louis Dreyfus, ADM, and, all the, and Tate and & Lyle, even people like that. And, and they literally say, well, I've got 30,000 tons of sugar or grains, and it's got to go from A to B. Uh, and you say, well, you can have my ship for $20,000 a day. Um, you sign a contract called a Charter Party. And they pay you 15 days in advance. Um, and you have obviously potential to take liens against the cargo, which is worth more than um, than the, the, the contract itself. So you've got some form of security in the payment. But obviously, when you're dealing with high-quality counterparts like Cargill, Lou Dreyfus, and Swire, and all, all, all these big companies uh, that Taylor Maritime deals with and focuses on, uh, you're not particularly worried about counterpart risk. But we have brokers in London that we call up as an owner. Um, but so much of our industry is based on personal relationships long-standing networks, long-standing friendships and really that's where Taylor Maritime tries to add value it's through our, our supply chain connections and our reputation for always paying our bills always being easy to work with trying to be cooperative when problems do arise and so on
0: Okay, and just sort of maybe on a, a more practical level. So, if you if you're the ship owner, what, how do you make this connection? So, as in, is there is there, a, let's say, someone does want to ship grain, will they come to you directly and say, "I want to ship grain grain from X to Y," or you, is there a broker? Because, like you mentioned, brokering is quite a big part yeah, of this industry. And London like is the
1: centre of shipbroking uh, certainly, um, as far as I'm concerned. And um, no, I. It, it varies. If, you, if the person happens to know you, and I make it a personal habit of knowing all of our clients personally, um, but if they don't know you, they generally go through a broker. Brokers fill a very important role. Um, you know, a lot of people outside the industry just say, well, why don't you call people directly and you don't need the broker. But brokers create the market and information flow uh, and you know they have their ears to the ground and know what's going on. and. And and so we brokers are very important to our community, especially in the handy size segment, which is quite fragmented.
0: Yeah, and uh, I mean, as another part of this, you, you mentioned the sort of rates that you give people to 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 charter the ship. I mean, how long is a is a like a typical contract? If you if you compare it to say renting a house, year and you might have a contract to, like rent a house for a year with a fixed monthly rate or a fixed daily rate, whatever it might be. Um, how does that work in the shipping world? I mean, do, would you just someone come to you and say, "I want to charter your ship for six months or twelve months"?
1: Or? Well, it's, it's like it's a bit like sort of it's a bit like um, owning a hotel that can do day rates but also ten-year rates. Um, so we're able to constantly readjust in a rising market, and in the top of the, at the top of the market, we're able to lock in those long-term rates. Um, so we've got um, an average cover of eight months at the moment. Some ships are on two and three year charters to create that sort of baseline of income. And some ships we trade on anywhere between three and six months. Um, so we can leave them open um, in the event we think the market's going to get stronger. But people will come to us and sort of say, well, can I have a ship for a year and I want to not another year? Or it's really it changes week by week um, the, the availability of coverage out there but we tend to keep it pretty pretty um, evenly spread out. So about a third of our fleet are on one-year charters, a third of our fleet are on six-month charters, and a third are on sub-six-month charters. Um, and obviously, the, the other thing, it's much easier to sell a ship if it's on a, a six-month charter rather than a three-year charter, and liquidity is very important to us.
0: Yeah, and so, I mean, at what point would you consider selling a ship, Ben? I mean, if, if that's, that's obviously yeah. something that's going to be on your mind as well. Well, um,
1: my chairman always reminds me, uh, nobody got poor taking profit. So the important thing is not to be too greedy. And, uh, you may have seen that this year we sold five ships and, uh, I think all but one were over a hundred percent IRR and one was in the very high eighties or nineties, I can't remember, but the point is, you know, it's not the top of the market now, in our opinion, there's still a year or two more to go at, as far as we can see, and it might go beyond that. Um. But in what would make us sell ships? Um, age, condition, getting an offer that's above the NAV, and um, you know maybe thinking we might be able to buy it back uh, at below NAV. But essentially, we're always looking at the NAV and what we think the true value of the ship is. And if we can, if we can get a little bit more for it, then we're creating additional premium for our shareholders. Uh, and we've managed to do that successfully uh, this year five times. Um, now, if we think it's the top of the market, and we haven't sold most of the fleet already, then probably uh, we're not very good at our jobs, but you really want to catch the sales on the rising market rather than closer to the top, because you don't want to be greedy. So I'm sorry not to give you a, a date and a month yeah. and a year, but, uh, <laughs> We're in a good market. We sold the ships and we transferred the ships because we actually didn't take anything out. We transferred the ships into the IPO at really attractive prices. So, a 10 year old at the IPO was 12.25 million, I believe. And a 10 year old today is like 19 million. So, we, we really tried to transfer that uplift in, in what we thought the market was going to do to our, to our shareholders. And, and we still think there's upside value. Just to give you an example, a 10 year old ship today might be $19 million. A 10 year old ship uh in 2006 was 37 million dollars so people have seen us go from eight nine million for a 10 year old up to 19.
0: but historically speaking we're only halfway and how i mean how easy is it for you to to sell a ship you mentioned you've sold five which kind of implies that it's it's, a a doable task if
1: you're known for being easy to deal with uh not too greedy um accommodating when pro- practical problems arise. And if you have Japanese ships, you tend to have a bit more liquidity than some of your, your counterparts. So uh, one of the reasons we focus on Japanese ships is that they're just much easier to sell in a difficult market. Uh, in a difficult market, uh, ships from other nations just don't don't get inspected at all. There's no interest. Uh, and and we, we really wanted to avoid that. And it's also important, obviously, to have the same ships for our customers so they know we've got a homogenous fleet of high-quality ships.
0: Okay, well, to, to move on a, a little bit, I think that most people are aware of the fact that sh- the shipping industry and supply chains and so on have, have gone crazy basically over the past three years because of COVID, because of the war in Ukraine. I wonder if first you can talk about you know, being sort of more on the ground as it were, what has actually gone on to make prices go up, go up so much for say, chartering or whatever it might be, but also, do you do you see the, those problems coming to an end in the near term? And if so, what impact will that then have on you, as you know, or on Taylor Maritime?
1: Um, are we talking about bulk or also containers? I may have missed.
0: Yeah, I suppose just for the, the for bulk or the shipping industry as a oh, whole. I mean, really.
1: what's what what's made ships go up is is you know we came out of COVID with this pent up demand. And the world's getting back into yeah. gear. You know, restaurants are opening, hotels are opening, which is why lockdowns are not very good. They're not very pleasant for uh, for demand. Um, but as we came out of COVID lockdowns, the world came back to life and demand suddenly shot up. But of course, for three years, nobody built any new ships. Um, and nobody ordered new ships. So we had suddenly a rapidly growing demand and uh, and zero supply. Um what can Taylor Maritime do? Um, well, um, we could sell ships. Um, we could lock in longer-term charters to create uh, downside protection. Um, there's a number of things, but you know those are trade secrets, and uh, you'll have to see uh, <laughs> see what see how we do it in the, in the coming years. Okay,
0: um, and I mean when you one other question I had was just related to the types of cargo you have. So if you imagine. I charter a ship, so let's say. Well, in in some sense, the time is irrelevant. It's more like if I'm chartering, you know, one commodity that is going to make me a lot more money than another, does that then affect how much you charge them to charter the ship, or does it does it have no bearing? Well, so or is that takes
1: part in the, a type of lease called a time charter. And a time charter, we yeah. charge a dollar per day. We don't take risk on the weather, the time. We don't take risk on um, the cost of fuel. Um, so our customer takes all those risks off our hands. And so, no, the market in the time charter is more or less the same, depending on where you are, but it's more or less the same regardless of the cargo on board. It's the traders that, who are our customers who are taking advantage of the uh, difference in value between you know, your, your cheaper quantities versus your more expensive ones.
0: Okay, great. And um, I mean, perhaps to, to finish off, are there any sort of nuances or or areas of the industry that if you're a prospective investor, you think this person should be aware of? So if I'm coming to Taylor Maritime, beyond the, the obvious the qualities you've described, described so far, what are, the, are there any sort of key facets that people should be aware of, particularly if they're more sort of unexpected or you wouldn't wouldn't necessarily know about them if you were an outsider?
1: Well, it depends what kind of investor. If you're looking for Yield, um, just be really wary of how much leverage uh, companies have on their balance sheets. Historically speaking, shipping companies have a lot of leverage uh, and it just reduces your margin for error um, when the market turns. I would, second of all, I'd always look at the quality of the ships they buy. Are they built at the best yard? So for handy size, we'd say... Japan for containers, you might say. Japan or even and China for gas ships, you might say. Korea, for example. So, quality of ships, capital structure, reputation of the management is critical. Do they have a good track record? Um, are there any hidden management fees, or are they transparent about it? Um, so, but really, it's um, track record is everything. Do your research on the people who are managing your ships, and do your research on the managers who are running your investment. Um, and uh, it can be it can be um, cyclical but it doesn't have to be and hopefully TMI is proving that we can offer downside protection but with upside exposure
0: Fantastic, well I think that's a good point for us to stop so Ed, thanks very much for joining me and thanks everyone for listening if you are interested in learning more about Taylor Maritime then head over to the Trust Intelligence website where we have a full research note on them and uh, Yeah, that's it. So thanks, Ed, again for joining me, and hopefully we'll speak again soon. Thanks very much, David. You've been listening to Trust Issues by Kepler Trust Intelligence. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Remember to visit our website at trustintelligence.co.uk to keep up with all the latest research on investment trusts.